Hello there and welcome to Racehorse Movies, the show where two film fans take a racing sheet from last week, pick a random horse name for each other and from that name pitch a movie. In the pitch, to flesh out our movie ideas, we may include such things as stars, directors, composers, best boys and stable boys. Maybe not that last one. Hoping none of our ideas have to be put behind a screen and shot. The sky's the limit, the horses are on the starting line, the jockeys are frothing. It's time for Racehorse Movies. Oh, hello there, and welcome to Racehorse Movies. I'm Graham Thomas, and I'm joined by my very, very good friend, Mr. Luke Searle. Hello there. How are you doing? Good? Yeah, not too shabby, thank you very much. How are yourself, sir? I am very well. We've got, I hope we've got a very good show lined up for people today. We've got two horses to pitch, one that we've given each other, and two mini pitches that we're going to pitch from each other's horses and see how that goes. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm very excited about mine. I'm more excited about hearing about yours. Well, ditto, sir. But before we get into that, how have you been? You good? What's been going on? Not too bad. Uh, I've been mainly playing God of War, if I'm completely honest with you. Uh, that's mm-hmm. taken up a lot of my time. Uh, probably too much, arguably, but... Ragnarok or the one before? Ragnarok, indeed, yeah. Uh, I have now 100% completed it. I've done everything that is possible to be done in the game. Hardest setting? No, thank goodness. I got. I was getting towards the end, and I was like, suddenly like, well, I've played 75 hours of this, so I must be close <coughs> to some kind of platinum, and probably needing to rethink some life decisions yes. that I've made recently. 75 of them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then I realised, oh, well, I'm quite close to doing the trophies. I might as well get a, uh, a platinum, because that's mm-hmm. not something I necessarily do all the time. And then I was hit with the realisation, what if I have to, 75 hours in, have to now go back and do it all on a super hard setting or something like that. Wow. But thankfully I did not. What setting do you start on? Uh, I'm always a normal man. Okay, you're um, a normal man. Because you're a yeah. seasoned gamer. I would have thought you would have started in pro or something. But then I also want, there's a real fine line between uh, enjoying a game um, as it's meant to be enjoyed and then enjoying the challenge of completing a hard game, I think. I think those two things are equally satisfying but don't necessarily go together sometimes. Okay. Uh, and if I was to play through something like uh, Dead Space, which I will be looking at next, or God of War or something like that, if I was playing on a super hard setting and getting slain every five minutes mm. and absolutely not enjoying um, the flow of the game and not being able to move through the narrative as quickly as I wanted to and things like that, that would really get in the way of like my overall enjoyment of the game because I'm quite, if I get into a game, I get into the narrative, I really want to keep the propulsion and the momentum of that going. And this is all my excuse for not being on the hard <laughs> level and being right. a wimp, by the way. <laughs> you don't have to make excuses about not being on the hard setting, my friend. Thank you very much, man. I feel like this is a safe space. I've mm. got my uh, I've got my trust pillow engaged, uh, and do. I appreciate that, sir. It's a safe space. Um, I think, yeah, kind of like if I were to do Call of Duty and instead of doing campaign level, I just went straight to online multiplayer and just got iced like every second. Um, it's pointless. It's- yeah, yeah. How yeah. you going to learn? Yeah, where's the joy? The joy you need, you need feedback. You need, uh, yeah. you know, positive feedback, man. And I don't get that as much uh, on those crazy settings. Difficult to get that in any arena of life, isn't it? Oh, I know, man. Crikey, boy. If only I could put my life on normal setting and uh, <laughs> not whichever other ones it fluctuates uh, into on a daily, if not hourly basis. You're not one of those, I'm mad me settings. <laughs> I'm so bonkers. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it's been a lot of that, man, which has been a real joy, actually. I'm not going to beat myself yeah. up for sitting down and truly uh, immersing myself in something. I haven't sure. done that for a long time. It's been, uh, yeah, pretty wonderful, man. Good for you. And also really killer content for a podcast that's based around films. 
I, I thought I would really just mm. knuckle down and get something that was really worth us talking about. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to rattle off some recipes that I've been cooking as well. Yeah, yeah, guess, guess, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it might be like the 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 spaghetti from the uh, uh, from Goodfellas or something like that. We could have a nice themed, uh, yeah. which is a different podcast entirely. In fact, it is a different podcast. Anyway, shall we crack on with the episode? We yeah. better had. All right. We have our horses. We dealt them out last week. Um, mm-hmm. You uh, gave me Love and Jukebox. I did. Well, before we do that, we should just say what, what the race was. Yes, we should. Please. For those who didn't listen to last week's episode, because it hasn't come out yet, uh, we chose the horses from the 325 Banger on D. You gave me... What did I give you? You gave me uh, Love and Jukebox. I did. And you gave me... Um, Arsino's Adventure. Absolutely, I did. Uh, so which horse is first out the gate, man? Um, I don't mind. Do you want to go first or should I go first? We've also done quick pitches for each other's horses, right? Should we do that afterwards? Yeah, yeah. If we do, we'll do those uh, Yeah, at the end. That sounds fantastic, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. Shall, shall I go first? Okay, this one is... It's not as tight a pitch as perhaps you would want in an elevator while standing next to... Um, Kevin Feige or Lawrence Bender, it's a bit sprawling, but I'm going to try and tell it as if I were telling a story rather than reading a pitch, okay? 100%, yes. Okay. Right, this is Arsino's Adventure. So many options you could have done with this. So many, so many options. Of course, I went with sci-fi. Oh, nice. (laughs) Sci-fi, yeah. Arsino's Adventure. Starship Adventure is an off-world deep space transport. (laughs) So it takes like soldiers rotating back off tour, workers, um, people looking to emigrate to other planets. It's two years into a five-year journey. (laughs) Really? RCN0 is a droid or is a mech or whatever you want to call it. I don't know sci-fi speak, who works on adventure. The basic mechanical duties, we spend some time with him. He goes about his business. Everybody else is in cryo, right? So there's loads of droids and mechs just making sure the ship's running. It's like a little community. Um, he goes around and he's regularly updating the main ship's computer with his diagnostics, you know, battery 25%. Again, I don't know sci-fi terms. We can figure that out later. Battery 25% is a completely legitimate sci-fi term, Graham. I think it is. I think it is. Um, and sci-fi is rooted in reality anyway, so battery is always 25%. Um, so these mechs are living and working on this ship like a little community. Um, RCN Zero has got a bit of a personality, as they will do. They're just going about their business. And maybe, I don't know, because I don't particularly like them too much, maybe some flashbacks to life on the ship before the deep sleep. So you see, you know, what the life was like with people going around, you know. Anyway, this is where it gets really technical. Due to an astronomical anomaly... Mm-hmm. Uh, the ship changes course and loses power. You know, it malfunctions. There's some electrical fires that just comes out of nowhere, and the ship starts to break up. And all the mechs are frantically rerouting around the ship to try and like fix it or stop it, or figure out what's going on. But the ship starts to break up, and loads of the mechs are sucked out. Vital sh- sections of the ship, like the hospital and the galleys and whatnot, are destroyed. Um, but RCN Zero survives, acts really heroically, saving the ship as best he can, you know, sealing off bulkheads and, and the bridge and whatnot. And he 
bravely battles to the cryopods as the ships are spinning and contorting because he's a mech. He, well, he's a mechanic. He can like use magnetic boots and he can like drill into the wall so he can like move around the ship really conveniently as it's spinning. And he's got and boosters and things like that, I assume. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. He's got boosters, all that stuff. Um, and mo- but many of the pods are destroyed. But he saves a lot and. Uh, he sacrifices a lot of his functioning power by saving a specific pod. Like he dives on it as a stanchion comes through and he takes it in the chest or whatever. Anyway, um, the ship lands on some ominous planet and RC comes back online. He reports his vitals to no reply. So the ship's mainframe computer is kaput and he's pretty much the only mech left on this ship and the cryopods. So he's badly injured, he's malfunctioning, and he has to repair the ship. So he seals uh, the cryopods inside, make sure they're safe, and he selects some to wake up, the ones that he logically thinks are the most useful to get things back up and running. So mechanics, doctors, maybe some soldiers, you know, whatever, some muscle or whatever. Yeah, you need some protection. Some need protection. Um, and one survivor, I'm just going to call them survivor because it's, it's not a gender-specific role. For this person, it could be anyone, really. So one survivor is devastated to see that their partner is dead, but luckily their child is safe in cryo. So all these people, these five or six people that have woken up, you know, they're devastated and lost. Some are with families, some with aren't. Anyway, Arcee is repaired by the survivors, and he reports his vitals, and they just put him back to work. So then the survivors assess the situation, and they're stressed out, but they're all working really well together. There's no fake tension. They just want to survive. But mainly they want to bury the dead. Um, but RC coldly advises against it. We can't incinerate them because we need to preserve fuel, can't blast them into space because it's too fuel costly. The morgue and the hospital sections didn't survive, um, and the outside is just too unknown. We can't go out there. Um, so he um, he suggests if they really want to do it, he'll go alone out there to try and find a suitable space. The survivor convinces against RC logic to venture out with him because they want to find a suitable place from a humane perspective to bury and mourn for their dead rather than just finding some hole to chuck A practical out. robot solution to it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the survivor convinces RC and others that we should do an expedition party and also to scout the area, see what's what. Um, that night, the survivor holds a vigil over his dead partner and RC observes unseen just to see what's going on. Yeah. So then they, next day they uh, survey the wreck and the surroundings. There's only four workable suits, so the rest who um, were awoken stay behind to work on the adventure, fix it up, see what supplies they've got, that kind of thing. While out surveying, they discover other downed ships. So the planet is, this is where it gets vague, <laughs> not so technical, but vague. The planet is some kind of Bermuda Triangle. We can develop this later. Yeah. So for some reason, it's loads of crashed ships all around them. And uh, they investigate Sun, and none, of, none are fully working, but RC manages to turn on the computer of one light cruiser. But then something catastrophic happens, some kind of gravitational anomaly. The planet starts to go berserk. The adventure breaks up even further, and there's a core reactor leak. Those back at the adventure seal the cryotubes in the bridge before they themselves are crushed as an engine root implodes. The whole planet is, like, volcanically changing and erupting. It's just not a nice place to be. It's a bad situation. has got, got worse, right? Yeah, yeah. On, on the expedition, they try and get back to the adventure, but it's too inhospitable and the planet is just going nuts. Three of the four die and RC manages to save Survivor, but his suit is damaged and they just get back to the ship on time. Survivor gets to the bridge and RC stays outside to fix a dangerous leak. He does so as the planet calms itself. But RC is badly damaged and heavily irradiated, so the Survivor's got no choice. 
He loads RC's mobile repair units into an airlock for handover, then he seals it. So he's locked himself inside, and RC and Zero is locked outside permanently. Right? So they're just stuck now. So RC reads back their vitals. He says, like, while I was carrying you, you you know, your heart rate is this, your blood pressure is that, you're okay, I'm this, I'm okay, because he's a robot, right? Yeah, yeah. So while the planet is calm, RC and Survivor get to work fixing what they can. They work well together and they form a bond. RC even tells some jokes. And then they celebrate when the hull is secure and the cryo tubes and the bridge are pretty much okay. And then the Survivor searches around and finds some whiskey and they position themselves so that they can see each other through a window. He drinks while RC powers up. And Survivor tells of family life in the past, you know, filling in the backstory, bonding, that kind of thing. Oh, mate, yep, yep, yep. Sharing the data banks. Yeah, exactly. And then they're drinking and there's talk. Well, one of them's drinking and they're talking, having fun. And RC recalls a time on the ship when he made friends with a kid and they bonded. And the kid drew Arsino on his chest plate, which is R-C-E-N-0 rather than... The survivor talks of why they're on the ship and his hopes for the future off-world. And RC runs a diagnostic on himself. His damage is terminal. There's nothing he can do about it, but he chooses not to reveal that information. He keeps it for himself this time. And then they carry on talking and the survivor just passes out whiskey and whatever. And then they're they're awoken by some geological readouts from the computer systems that are still working. And he calls out for RC and it takes a while for RC to power back online because he's fucked. And the planet is due to go berserk again within six hours. So it's a rotational thing. So the survivor has a bit of a breakdown and RC calms him and says, look, there's only one solution, but they're going to have to do it together. The only way off the planet is to get out of atmosphere in five hours and set a course for a shipping lane and hope to be picked up in deep space. And the only way to do that is to get one of the downships flightworthy. It's the longest shot ever. Um, RC prefers not to read the vitals of success, which makes the survivor laugh and makes them, him come on board with the plan. They confirm the plan as they look each other through the window and then they get to work. An airlock is loaded with unspecified gear on trolleys. It's like a tooling up montage. RC is getting ready. Survivor is working on the electronics under the desk, strengthening supports around the cryo tubes. It's kind of last stand stuff. And then the time comes. So we're into the third act now, pretty much. RC has to venture out alone back to the down ships. He's damaged and he's irradiated and is eating away at him. The planet is starting to warm up and RC's damaged means some of his functions aren't working so he can't bolt to the ground, he can't use his jetpack so he's just getting Aww. thrown about the place, he's getting battered and when... No! Stop it! <laughs> And then the adventure itself starts to get battered by the weather and the survivor desperately tries to protect the cryotubes and a stanchion falls on and crushes his leg. So he's, you know, he's fucked as well. The distance then between them causes the comms to fail. So the survivor is distraught and drags himself to the comms desk and frantically works to try and fix the ship's comms. And he sacrifices the remaining flight power to do so. Which, so he's basically gambling everything that this plan might work. You know, put all the last adventure power into this. Yeah. The com the comms come back on and he can talk to RC. He encourages him on um, and reports on his own vitals. RC battles on and reports back medical procedures so that the survivor can secure his legs. So they're still communicating with each other and encouraging each other, keeping them going. Um, so while the ship's, uh, while the guy's preparing himself, the, the ship's computer malfunctions and starts to play back footage from the initial crash. And the survivor watches the heroics of RC during that crash as he's saving the cryo tubes. Cut to RC down, getting to the, and he just slumps down out of energy, dead. 
Oh, mate. Survivor sees RC saving his child's pod and failing to save his partners, though he recognises it was an impossible choice. So right at the beginning, the the pod that he got the thing through was the child that wrote Arsino. It's quite obvious. So over the comms, the survivor sees this and he emotionally begs Arsene not to give up and he, to keep trying like he did when he saved his child. And he screams out for Arsene to give him his vitals, just give me the information. Arsene reroutes his power and makes it to the ship. He seals himself in a bay and remote pilots the ship back to the adventure. The flight is chaos, but Arsene is piloting it like a boss. <laughs> <laughs> I've written that. <laughs> Meanwhile, Survivor is preparing um, the cryo tubes to be moved. He's on crutches and in tons of pain. Arsene lands the ship near Adventure. Arsene puts a mech suit from the new ship in the Adventure's airlock and tells Survivor that it's good to go for about half an hour before the radiation in the suit just breaks the suit down. The planet is really heating up. So Arsene and Survivor together manage to load as many cryo tubes onto the new ship as safely as possible, and it's time to leave. Survivor turns to thank RC, but RC steps back and closes a blast door, sealing Survivor off from the bridge. Survivor bangs on the glass and begs to be let on the bridge. RC reads his own vitals. He's too irradiated. He must pilot the ship to atmosphere and Survivor must seal himself in cryo. Survivor begs to be allowed on the bridge so that they can do it together. Um, RC sits down in a mech chair and kind of plugs himself into the navigation systems. Yeah. The ship powers up and Survivor watches as the autopilot is set. Arcee manages to get the ship up and away from the planet's, as the, from the planet's effects. He turns around to Survivor and manages to wink with his last bit of power before shutting down completely just as they get into a shipping lane. Survivor cries and falls to his knees in thanks and relief and crawls to an empty pod. The ship breaks free into outer space. That's kind of the end of the film. We have two denouement. Right, I, I'm, right, because I've got hopes here, man. So, okay, hit me with them, please. Right, so denouement one. A man and his child in an off-world planet stand in a garden of their pod and look out at a new planet, all happy. We pan down to the sign on the gate and it says Arsino's homestead. So they've obviously oh, been made and they picked up. Yeah. Denouement 2, 65 years later. A man in his 30s walks his son through a museum, telling him of how the family finally came to what is known as Arsino's homestead. And then we end on a shot of RCN0 at the control deck, preserved in a glass case in a museum, revered as a saviour. That one, please. And, like, is, is there any way we can have, a, like, when he's in the, uh, in, encased within his uh, tomb, if you will, for mm. viewing, forevermore laid in state, is there any chance for, like, a glimmer of power in one of his eyes or anything like that? We could do that. That would be more horrific because now he's stuck inside the glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I feel you didn't punish him enough, you know. <laughs> like an Edgar Allan Poe kind of thing. <laughs> <It was> just... <laughs> yeah, and then, like, a, an oily tear just uh, down the side tear. of his face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won the second. I would love the, the second one, man. Um just so I can see him again, because I want to see him again already now that he's died in front of me. I want to see him again, even if it is well, lifeless, at least being remembered and honoured. Yeah. And maybe there's a vid screen next to him playing through his original triumphant heroics that are, you know, forever, forever glorifying the, the wonderful sacrifices he made for the humans, man. Okay, nice. So, yeah, that's Arsino's adventure. And so are we thinking, is this live action or are we thinking animation? Well, it could go either way because you could strip back some of the horrible brutality of the dead people and you could have animation quite <laughs> nicely. You could have animation quite nicely or it could be quite gritty as a live action. 
it could go either way. Yeah, well, if it's like I, I can see, like a not necessarily uh, in the uh, stories that he would write, but a Blomkampy visual style to it would mm-hmm. be beautiful. That would look amazing. He's one of my direct. He's one of my directors. So I selected Neil Blomkamp. Uh, I think that if we uh, we could also pitch to the family audiences if we really wanted to and go uh, full on animation for that, I think Pixar would do a bang up job of that story as well. The heartstrings would be wrenched. Uh, come the demise, uh, surely that that would be an absolute. They would they would wring every square drop of emotion out of that, and yeah, I would I be weeping would. in the cinemas. <laughs> My touchstones for it actually were um, Wally, obviously. Um, All is lost, the Robert Redford sailing. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, and also Die Hard, just the McLean and. Um, Al talking to each other and trying to get them through the situations and being practical oh. and being emotional and that kind of thing. Yeah, and both supporting each other exactly as and when they need need that support and breaking down and opening up to each other. I can imagine Survivor having an amazing scene where they're like, I can't do this anymore. And like Arcido slowly talking them round uh, over the fizzling breaking comms as he's leaking radiation mm. out of his chest, <laughs> man. I think that would work. I think Bloomcat would be good. My second top choice, well, I've only got two choices. So my second top choice, my first top choice, really. Yeah. As I, I scale down some of the, the violence or the, the death um, and make it more of a four-quadrant movie, I think John Favreau would probably do quite well with that. Uh, Favreau is such a good choice. Zathura, I remember mm-hmm. very fondly watching that. That is an amazing kids' movie from back in the day, and he is always so good at handling any kind of visual effects. He's one of those directors who knows how he wants things to look and manages mainly to translate that completely to screen, man. I think he would be a very good shout. And there'd be a lot of tenderness. Like, he's, he's got a lot of heart to him as well, man. And I think it would be nice to have lots of heart in this story. It's kind of a one man and his dog kind of a thing. Yes. Uh, no offence to Arsino and your adventure, obviously. Um, you're much more than a dog to me. Already you're in my heart. And yes, I was wincing as you were dying in front of me in my mind, as Graham uh, described it. Um, but yeah, I could I could totally see him knocking that out of the park. Uh, have you got any voice in mind for Arsino at all? I don't. I, well, I think it first started when I developed it way, way back at around 3pm today. It first started that the survivor was might be a child or like a teenager or a young, a young kid to make it more Pixar friendly. More peril but, as more well. More peril, of course. But and then more need for Arsino to fill in all of these technical gaps and more tension around all of those technical gaps that are getting filled as he's trying to do things live. Yep. Yeah. So that that could still work. But I like. I think I, it'd be a bit too much suspension of disbelief if they're having to go out in this hospital world and there's like a nine-year-old child with them like trying to do technical mechanical stuff and not breaking down absolutely completely and having a mental... Yeah, no, the kids shut down, completely lose it and be dead. But pits like 14, 15, we can hit the YA market or something like that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be nice. Um, voice wise, I don't know. Um, I'm always going to I'm always going to sell Bill Hayer for everything. <laughs> Alan, Alan Tudyk or Bill Hayer. What does he What does he look like? Is he, by the way, is he humanoid or is he more like amorphous, kind of functional machine looking? Um, I imagine him to be quite humanoid. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I imagine it to be maybe with Wally's head, like the big, bunch yeah, of expressive eyes. Yeah, I like the one that looked like the projectors in meeting rooms or whatever. The uh, yeah, yeah, or uh, lecture theatres back in the day. Yeah, man. yeah but, but very, very, very strong. Head. Maybe quite long arms, long legs, quite tall, eight foot tall. 
but can, can maybe can back down into small spaces and super Well, he's strong. a practical like maintenance droid. So yeah, he's yeah. going to have lots of skills like that, extendable things for... I don't know why yeah. I'm thinking maintenance droids are sweeping cobwebs up. That's probably not their priority in space. <laughs> I'll be completely honest with you, Graham. <laughs> well, space spiders, I don't know. <laughs> oh no, 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 not no, no. Pixar will not pick it up. We've got space spiders crawling around this thing, man. It also depends how close they go to Mars, because as we know, spiders from Mars are a plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there's the uh, end song, and that is the sequel, man. So the house is on Mars. Um, you pan out from the house and out and out and out and out, mm-hmm. out B-movie style, and then Spiders from Mars starts playing as some spiders come in from Mars toward the house. Sorted. Sequel. <laughs> sequel. Greenlit, <laughs> man. Arsino's Adventure Home. Oh, there we go. There we go, man. I. Uh, it was... I love... It's sci-fi. I'm so... You've already... You had me at sci-fi, uh, as they yes. would say. Um, but yeah, that that sounds absolutely fantastic. I love Arsino's adventure. And by the way, you 100% delivered on the adventure because not only is he saving the adventure itself with all his robot mates and then it crashes mm. anyway and then he's got to survive the planet, he's then got to get off the planet. The, the guy's had a mm. legitimate adventure. You have not shortchanged us, uh, us based on that title. Nice. Thank you. I had um, I wanted the adventure to be a boat or a spaceship. Well, originally it was going to be a boat, but then I thought... Every idea I came up with, I thought, oh, that's just the terror. That's Moby Dick. Master and Commander. That's Master and Commander, isn't it? So fuck yeah. it, set it in space, it's completely different. No one's ever done that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's fantastic, man. Yeah, Greenlit, man. I'm giving you... Greenlit. Yes. Giving you... Uh, I'll give you a cool 80 million for that, I think, man. Cool 80 million. Nice. Yeah, I think that'll Thanks, see man. you through. Talk to Neil Blomkamp. Don't maybe get him to direct, but he knows what he's up to with visual stuff. Yeah, maybe. I will. Or what about who did um, Moon? It could be a Duncan Jones return. I was absolutely thinking that. Yep. That he could mm, redirect just... himself from, uh, I believe it was Warcraft as well as Mute, um, the two. Oh, God. Yeah, slightly. Uh... Swing and a miss. Yeah, yeah, which is fine because he can come back strong with Arsino's Adventure. <laughs> there we go. Of course he can. Right. Well, thank you very much. That was Arsino's Adventure. Later on, after we've done uh, Love and Jukebox, we'll come back to your quick pitch for Arsino's Adventure. Absolutely, man. That's no worries. But now, let's turn our attentions to Love and Jukebox. That's right. Could we just, for the um, listeners' benefits, can we just clarify? Is it Loving Jukebox or Love In? It is Love In. Um, no G mm. and a little apostrophe apostrophe above the N. So it's it's a cool loving. Mm. Um, it's a sexy loving, um, <laughs> sensuous loving, um, and, and a kind of, of the kind of loving that you'd you'd look at at a party but be shy of talking to. It's that kind of yeah. loving, man. Right uh, and jukebox <laughs> is as normal. Uh, sure, and they're always quite fun at parties. So that doesn't need a apostrophe or anything or any abbreviations no. to it. Um, right. So loving jukebox. Billy Burroughs went to Vietnam to save lives and fight the good fight. Only the fight ain't good and life is cheap. So the year is 1969. Uh, Billy Burroughs goes from flying choppers for the Boston Coast Guard with his kid brother David to flying dust off in Vietnam when he decides to use his skills in the Vietnam War that rages overseas. Any wide-eyed innocence is knocked out of him by his first tour, which is a blur of horror and contradictions. The only thing he's sure of anymore is he's got to save as many people as he can 
uh, by whatever means necessary. And that is the only way he's going to be able to add any kind of good. And he is a man that wants to add good. He saved a lot of lives in the Coast Guard. He's got a taste for it. It completes him. And the war has pulled him back apart again. He doesn't know where he is. And the only thing he can focus on is getting as many people out alive as possible. So ripping through the canopies, blasting out the reel-to-reel tapes his brother sends from back home, Billy's chopper, loving jukebox, is legend, king of the Vietnamese canopy. Nice. Billy and his team are saved from a Viet Cong ambush by Lin, a fighter for the People's Self-Defense Force, who opens Billy's eyes to the hundreds of South Vietnamese used and abandoned by the CIA, terrorized by rogue GIs. Billy understands it's more than Marines he must save out there. With Billy and Lynn working together, Loving Jukebox becomes more than just a medivac. It becomes a symbol for doing good in a place turned to bad. Billy and his team start to smuggle out South Vietnamese and in time a torrent of broken GIs using coordinates hidden in the reel-to-reel tapes he plays to get as many people safe as he can. This doesn't escape the attention of the CIA and Agent Dillard and his men, also big believers in doing whatever is necessary, who will stop at nothing to make sure Loving Jukebox is silenced for good and Billy and his team never make it out of Vietnam alive. Racing against the advance of the Viet Cong Army, the CIA, and the fall of Saigon, Billy and Loving Jukebox are about to face the biggest fight of their lives. Green light, 120 million, done. I'm in. (laughs) The the helicopter's called Loving Jukebox. Yeah, because of the reel-to-reel. That's the best idea I've heard. For ages. I I, I saw it scrawled on the side with, like, a a sassy lady Mm. with lovely hair. Um sort of like a tattoo kind of a thing as as was mm-hmm. uh, used to be done on bombs and uh, helicopters and whatnot and probably still is now that's the first thing i saw when you said love and jukebox i was like well that's that's what that has to be then it's definitely a vietnamese helicopter or a helicopter in vietnam sorry oh that is so good right low sorry but i mean obviously this is a pretty big movie it's it's yeah absolutely we've got it well director wise uh i had in mind David O. Russell, I thought, because I, I was like the Three Kings okay. mixture of uh, pathos as well as sort of somewhat over-the-top action, or, you mm-hmm. know, it felt like those things, two things could have really butted heads, but he managed to mose them really well nice. in Three Kings. I think he might be able to do that, but he will get lost in it. It's going to be too long. It will fall yeah, out of control. What kind of tone are we going for? Because obviously the, the, the penchant for Vietnam movies, because it has such an amazing soundtrack, is that you kind of you have this kind of zip and pep to the proceedings and stuff like that. And a lot of, especially kind of modern Vietnam films, they seem to have, the horror seems to have gone away from it because it's, it's kind of... Yeah. Yeah, it's been uh, consumed and regurgitated as something else and a million computer games have lost that power maybe. Yeah, like Kong Skull Island, which I actually quite like, but you can't see a Huey flying through a jungle without Buffalo Springfield playing now. It's just so ingrained, that iconography and that soundscape. So are you going down that similar route of fun Air America kind of tone? Or are you well, no, going, this is pretty brutal. I was thinking this bit, there were so many good songs. Um, obviously, so many good songs back then. But like there were some really powerful songs that weren't <laughs> in the jukebox sort of musical uh, or the jukebox uh, Vietnam movies that we've watched previously that mm. are hitting out, you know, there's something happening out there and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Good Morning Vietnam, everything like that. But I would pitch it, sort of uh, bring in some 
British psychedelia, so some small faces, a bit of Pink no, Floyd, okay. things like something more completive, uh, something a bit outside of the expected, but still completely um, legitimate mm-hmm. to be listened to by people at that time. Uh, John Prine has written some sure. absolutely beautiful songs that are much more low-key and much less air-punchy and much less... Uh, you know, yay America, because it's not yay America, because it's all about how the CIA are getting people on board to be spies, to be double mm. agents, to work for them, and then they're just completely abandoning them and leaving them uh, lost out in the middle of nowhere with none of the promises of a new life and uh, a new world and a new place to live and a new place to be and riches and all of the things that they promise fulfilled. And so it's like it's definitely not a good thing. So I'd, 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 I would do – we're going to be playing – a fair amount of songs, but I want them all to have that uh, sort of cynical or sad or melancholy heart to them. I think if we are, if we get the right director to take us through this, or we end up with Michael Bay or Peter Berg, because <laughs> they can get hold of it too. Um, David Russell is a good shout in that uh, you'd want someone who's angry about you know the situation, angry about the material. Someone cynical and yet has a bit of heart. So David Russell is a good shout. I immediately wrote. Now, this is a director who isn't cynical, um, I don't think, too much, um, but he's quite good at big films. I, I put Edward Zwick. Oh, ho, ho. wow. Last Samurai, um, Defiance, Legends of the Fall. <laughs> um, but, I, 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 just, I was thinking of scope. He, he, you know? he could handle that completely. That's a really, I haven't thought of Ed Zwick for so long man but that that does make it quite serious he probably doesn't he's not known for bringing the fun to his movies although it's not a particularly fun subject but there's a definite caper element that's the thing because he is pulling the wool over people's eyes i thought that he'd have a uh, base um superior whoever looks after like the flying unit the medivac unit Mm. um i was thinking of um he would be played by uh uh, ron livingston oh nice or Carl Chandler, but only because I fancy Carl Chandler <laughs> a lot. I was going to suggest Carl Chandler for Survivor, and that's right. Dude, it's so hard just, not to, to. just to please you. <laughs> just to please you. How about long shot but good shot, possibly? Uh, Pride comes before full grain, but how about Paul Verhoeven? Oh, yes. Yes, because he's, he's angry and he's quite happy to pull all of America apart. Uh, until he then yeah. decides he can no longer work there because <laughs> it's, it's no longer feasible. So yeah, Verhoeven would be amazing. He could do the um, horror incredibly well, as in just the horror of war as opposed. His Vietnam squib work would be amazing. Man, his, his squib man is going to be working overtime squid, if squid Verhoeven gets it. And, and yes, Verhoeven <laughs> does have a squib man. You, you better bet your bottom dollar, man. Yeah, Verhoeven would be really good. He is very good at building camaraderie quite quickly between groups of people and getting a team uh, vibe going, which I think I would want for this. Mm -hmm. And I think that Billy will be teamed up with a co-pilot, obviously. He's got to fly with someone, man. Mm -hmm. Um, And Scott. And Billy is... Sorry to interrupt, but did you say Billy is Ron Livingston or is Ron Livingston the Ron guy Livingston the is Ron Livingston, Livingskin, um, who is, he's a really good actor. He just stretched over a canvas. He's uh, <laughs> just flesh right. and they pipe electricity into him whenever they want him to act. <laughs> David Cronenberg's his agent. Um, so he's quite expensive, so I won't choose Ron Livingskin, actually. I think, um, no, Ron Livingston okay. is the uh, base 
Uh, he's either the general right, or general of the base, the guy who oversees all of the medivacs <laughs> and is taking account of the fact that Billy's been logging a hell of a lot of hours. He's been going in and out at different times. What the hell is your team up to, Billy? Um, and that is, yeah, that will be Ron Livingston because he extends a sympathetic ear to Billy when he's confronted and he's like, look, you ain't that clever kid. I've worked out exactly what you're doing. And all I've got to say is this is a real, real fine album, son. Now off you go. Get out there. And he lets him. If we can, aff- if we can afford, and now I always want to give work to Ron Livingston, but if we can afford, <laughs> can we get can, can we get Clooney in that oh, role? Yes, yeah. If we can, oh goodness me! I just I've literally blushed at the mention of that. Um, heavens, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Clooney would be fantastic, and he would also be quite a good um, foil for Dillard. Um, even mm. though they may not share a scene, but I think they will. They, they, they absolutely will, of course, because Dillard is going to come in mm-hmm. digging around, man. And that's Clooney's big scene is mm-hmm. when he gets Adele Dillard to go fuck himself and get the hell out of here. Get out of my team. My <laughs> men are out there saving lives every goddamn day. What the hell do you think you're doing, etc.? And Dillard yeah. will be played, I was thinking, by William H. Macy, man. All right, nice. Getting mean, man. A mean Macy with a moustache, mm. the triple M. That's what I want for, for Dillard. Nice. And okay. he'll have his requisite goons like Garrett Dillahunt, I was thinking, would be a good, like, <laughs> good, he is probably the the perfect, like, goon yeah. man. And he's got chops as well. Who are we thinking for um, Billy? Uh, and this is, again, probably just because I fancy them. Uh, but Jake Gyllenhaal was an immediate thought because of his big, beautiful, expressive eyes. I would believe he wanted mm. to save everyone. He, he could make yeah. me believe that with just a look and a toss of his hair and a little twitch of his lovely full beard. Mm. Yeah. He looked good with a bandana around his head and stuff, man. You know, like anyway, <laughs> let's not stray too far into my uh, it's quite my old. Late, late time fantasy. He is a little old. That's I. That was, and then I was like, well, Channing Tatum. He's got that same sweet okay. innocence, but. Again, maybe maybe I'm pitching a little too too old for both of them because there needs to be a bit of a gap between them and Ron Livingston slash George Clooney and um, our main man, H. Macy, as well. What about Efron? Dude, I also absolutely, I did, I absolutely considered Efron. So, yes, I think <laughs> we can pitch lower to Efron. Yes. Not in a bad way, Efron, if you're listening. I mean, pitch lower in age, not um, yes. talent. Not in talent. You are a very fine actor. Oh, Evan Peters. <gasps> yes. That maybe not leading man material, but like as a co-pilot or someone in there, like he one could of be his... Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could be Scott or one of the team. Maybe the younger, slightly freaked out um, member. Or I mean, we definitely can't afford him anymore because he's about to go megastrophic, whatever the word is. Um, Jonathan Majors. Is he going megastrophic? Well, he's Kang the Conqueror now. Oh, yes, he blooming is, isn't he? And he was amazing. The harder they fall, he was so cool in that film. Yeah, yeah, he would be. And he, yeah, he would be. Because I was thinking uh, also Michael B. Michael Jordan, B. Jordan as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Such a good movie. I'm in, 100%. You had me a, a chopper called Love and Jukebox. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah, yeah, so that is Love and Jukebox. Uh, amazing. Coming to a... Uh, imaginary mind cinema uh, near you soon that's a definitely cinema release isn't it oh yeah yeah that that's not streaming at home man this isn't a netflix movie we're not just like hopping around destinations willy-nilly in the hope that mm. it will retain my audience's entertain uh, attention <laughs> uh 
Uh, no, this is, yeah, this is big box, man. This is like 120 million. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Big, big old war film. Uh, we could even get Mel Gibson, but we couldn't because Mel Gibson's an evil mm. human. Um, but mm. he could handle I'd the clout and the look and stuff. If you want grizzled men um, in those kind of movies, you want someone like Stephen Lang, don't you? I thought, yeah, Stephen Lang is because he's just the epitome of like a marine in my yeah. head. Yeah, he just absolutely. looks like a like a, or a bit of a marine. I'm not sure, maybe a marine spleen or medulla oblongata or something, man. Yeah, you want the <laughs> marine spleen. You want the Stephen Lang or the Robert Duvall um, apocalypse now kind of character you know that they're just walking around drinking a cup of joe while bullets are zinging off them and they're not even flinching you know well um, that, that is that kind of- maybe uh, billy's first uh co-pilot he is put with when he joins who is killed in the ambush mm. where billy first meets lynn so that's right. perfect we can have the big boulders brass i've been here a million times this ain't my first yeah. rodeo kid strap in shut the fuck up let's go save some lives oh no i've got horribly killed because i'm too blase <laughs> and i didn't know what i was doing oh no i'm a terrible role model for you billy uh, those are a lot of last words <laughs> not once did you ask for morphine and he's all falling out of a helicopter as he's saying it <laughs> Um, yeah, so that 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 could that role could be filled. Maybe there we can get someone grizzled in for the for the opening uh, introduction to War Is Hell, mm. as uh, Billy is not there to lead us because he doesn't know what's going on. He's just running around yeah, in the turf absolutely. trying to stay alive, man. So we need someone else to guide the film at that point. Yes. That's a great shout. I'm in. Perfect. All right. I love it. What's your? Should we do short pictures? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I hundred percent. I would watch. Both of those films. I would especially watch your film. I'm 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 also yep, bums on seats, man. <laughs> bums on seats, Letty. So if you give me your jukebox, because I've been talking for ages, man, and then you okay. I'll uh, give you our Cino. So these are these are short pitches. These are originally we were gonna do what I think that you would come up with, but that's just too complicated. So my my initial thought for loving jukebox is quite a departure from your loving jukebox. <laughs> um I was thinking of basically. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna rip off coffee and cigarettes. It's a Jim Jarmusch film of vignettes, five or six vignettes, all told from the point of view of the jukebox that plays oh. like three, four or five songs. And while the songs are playing, a scene is playing out. I don't know. People on a date, people breaking up, or whatever it is that's playing on. And each vignette is a different period of the jukebox's life so there might be one in the 50s when it's brand new there might be one in like in the 90s when it's cool to be retro with your jukebox in your house or something there might be one yeah where yeah yeah so you, you can maybe get moved around and things yeah exactly and there's maybe a scene where it's I don't know, in the 80s when it wasn't cool to have one of those jukeboxes and it's in a repair shop and it's like the whole thing's tilted on its side where it's already dusty and the music for that scene isn't coming from the jukebox it's diegetic it's from like a, a radio so the scene playing on, and you've got the radio DJs talking rubbish. Oh, mate. And at the end, it gets restored and put into someone's house or something into a bar that everyone loves. And it's a, it's a real good. It ends on like a sock hop kind of doo-wop 1950s Yeah, dance. massive, like song and dance, but it's not a musical, mm. just a real life song and dance yeah, kind of yeah. a thing going on because of it, man. Yeah. Mm. So it's the life of, life of people through music, through the ages of a jukebox. Oh, that's that sounds absolutely glorious, man. That is, an, I, I like a hundred percent want to see that. That is amazing. And the good thing is, we could probably make that five locations, and like 
cut out what we think a jukebox looks like from the inside, man. Who knows? No one's ever been <laughs> in a jukebox before, man. No one's ever been in a jukebox. Just a cardboard frame around the camera, and then my ha- <laughs> my hand passing records over the front of the front of the lens <laughs> to change this record. <laughs> well, we can get some in the sound mix. We can get some pops. Exactly. You can do the sound effects. Don't even need an engineer. <laughs> And and oh mate, yeah, that's that that is that sounds absolutely brilliant. And you could have such a good ensemble cast with that as well. Like because mm. I guess we're gonna have to if it's Jim Jamoosh esque, we're gonna chuck a load of amazing actors in there, just let them sit there and do their thing, man. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that was my quick pitch for Love and Jukebox. Okay, well, uh, Arsino's adventure. Uh, Jack Arsino is a low-level mobster whose plane goes down in the jungles of Colombia during a simple delivery mission for his <laughs> boss. <laughs> Some bullshit legwork package to one of his boss's dons. He has to escape the jungle alive and with the package, which unbeknownst to Arsino is a strange stone effigy, a powerful totem that is wanted by more than the don. Dot, dot, dot. And I was thinking kind of a romancing the stone style adventure, but with like a big nice. lunk mafia enforcer in the role wearing his full <laughs> suit and, you know, a whistle and boot hat on, which just gets more and more tattered the more and more of the jungle and the more and more adventures he goes through. Yes. And he has to have one of those small suit brushes with him. So every chance he gets, he's brushing his suit off because <laughs> appearances are really important to him, right? Yeah. So he's yeah. always dusting, flicking in the rim of his cap. Yeah, and, and like, and he's he's got like his boot knife comb kind of a thing that he's constantly doing his hair with whenever he gets up from a massive tumble down a mountainside or falling down a big slippery slide and things like that. His hat's getting pinned to the wall by bows and arrows and booby traps, and yeah, his brace snaps at one point. He's only got one brace, and his trousers start coming down on the side. But that's a good thing because one of the bad guys hangs off his trousers. Well, now it's like Indiana Jabroni now. It's like- <laughs> Indiana Mook. <laughs> Indiana Mook and the puzzle of the Mook, you Mook. That is amazing. That's four for four, I think. Excellent, oh, man. Well done. Do you want a horse for next week? Absolutely. So I have just sent Luke the 220 from Dundalk, um, which races tomorrow, the 15th of February, 2023. We have 14 runners. Uh, I give you, sir, a made to shine. That's M-A-I-D. Made to shine. Okay, thanks. In which case, I'm going to give you Alpha Reader. Alpha Reader, A L F A R I D A. All right then. I've already got. I, I know what that's going to be in my head already. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Right. Well, there we have it. Another episode of Racehorse Movies is over. We both hope you had as much fun listening as we did coming up with these films and recording our pitches. If you enjoyed this, please share it around with your friends and loved ones. If it wasn't your thing, I don't know. Maybe share it with someone you miffed with. Who knows? If it's not for them either, maybe you two can build some bridges over that connection. But if you did like picking up what we put down and you fancy checking out some more content from us, then head over to theneverpress.com to take a gander at our novels, poetry, and other bits and bobs. Anyway, that's about enough from us. Hope to have you back next time for some friendly chats and barely thought through pitches at Racehorse Movies. Ta-ta! Ta-ta!